Well, good day, everybody. I'm Sam. And I'm Mike. And we are the Extras. The Extras. It's good to be back. Here we are. It's Tuesday lunchtime, and uh, we're here. We've got a few questions to get through today, which is what we do here on the Extras. We tackle some of the questions we didn't get to on Sunday nights at Question Time at church. And, uh, Mike, we've got sort of seven or eight to get through today, which uh, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, let's dive in, mate. Um, before we do, can, can I get you to just quickly remind us where were we in the Bible Sunday? Ah, yeah, yeah. Where so, Revelation 8 and 9, uh, the fact that this world is chaotic, it's a mess, there's horrible things that go on, and the kind of the, the angle, the camera angle the of Revelation 8 and 9 is saying to us, in light of all this, make sure that you repent. God wants us to turn back to him so much. He gives us Jesus as the way back, but he also gives us these warnings to say, come back to me before something worse happens. Mm, okay, and, and those warnings are coming in the form of judgment. That's sort of the, um, the mechanism that God is using to call people back, judgment now and judgment to come. Judgment now, judgment to come, that's right. And so as we see the bad things happening in the world, the famines, the earthquakes, the disasters, even death, they're all God calling mm. us back to him. Okay. Um, well, that sort of leads us nicely into our first question for today, um, which is about kind of judgment and particularly about the idea of wrath. Um, and the question is very simple. How could God be loving if he allows or brings judgment and wrath? Yeah, I understand the question because it feels very unloving, isn't it? When God is acting the way he kind of says he is and will act in Revelation 8 and 9. But we need to be careful. Wrath and judgment are not unloving acts. Um, they're not the opposite of love. Uh, the opposite of love is indifference. Mm. If God saw the evil in the world and just turned a blind eye, just swept it under the carpet, that's a God that isn't loving. But when a God responds uh, lovingly in wrath and judgment, you can tell that that's the love of God, even though it feels a little bit counterintuitive. And of course, the way we see that most clearly, clearly is in the cross of Christ, because that's where God's love is poured out also with his wrath and judgment on his son Jesus, who gets the wrath that we deserve so that we can have his full love without the wrath. Um, and so we're just going to be careful. Lo uh, wrath and judgment, they feel anti-love, but they're not. Because mm, we feel that when there's particular crimes that are committed and, and justice is not done. Mm. We have this yearning both individually and I think even as a community of people um, where, where we, we long for justice to be done. Absolutely. And when it's not done, we, we, get, we get upset, we get angry and, and rightly so and i guess god is seeing the whole world and all that has gone on throughout history and and for him not to act with wrath with judgment with justice uh, would, would be wrong and um, the, the the hard bit is that that then points back on us because uh, we see it when somebody else commits a crime <laughs> the bible points us uh, to the fact that that all of us are guilty doesn't it absolutely um, and uh, we we have this narrative in our culture that we're all good people deep down and we're all you know, on you know, uh, trying to get, do our best, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the Bible's much more honest than that. Uh, we're actually all part of the problem. <laughs> we're just as much sinners under judgment as the next person, and um, this judgment is coming to us. Uh, so, on that, um, second question is: as we read about this horrific judgment, which it is in, in um, these chapters, mm. um, the, the question of justice comes up god's justice i take it yeah um, and the question is if we knew it so if god knew many humans that he created would go on to reject him and so face his judgment 
Why did he create them at all? Surely it would have been better not to. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? And I, and I get the tension that uh, the, the person who obviously is wrestling with Revelation 8 and 9 has here. Um, a couple of ways to answer this. Um, first of all, we're not God. We don't know the big picture. And so it's tricky for us as mere creation creatures to kind of point back at the creator and say, why do it this way? Surely there's a better way to do it. Um, Romans 9 kind of talks a little bit like that. Um, and it kind of <laughs> um, puts us back in our place pretty quickly and says, who are you, oh man, uh, to talk back to God in that way? Uh, you're just the clay. Um, don't tell the potter how to form you. <laughs> mm. um, so that's kind of one answer um, that we can say to this question. Um, another answer is, yeah, God is infinitely good and powerful and loving and gracious, and he's actually working for our good and for his own glory. Um, and so we've got to make sure as we kind of interpret Scripture and interpret the world, we don't just put ourselves in the middle and make kind of God revolve around us, but actually God and his glory are central, and yes, we kind of revolve around around that. And so the world will, you'll kind of interpret the world differently if you can kind of have that mind shift that God's the one to be in the centre. Mm. And I guess um, to that end, um the fact that God chooses to save anyone it shows how merciful he is. If God could have glorified himself and shown his character of justice by destroying us all and, and just purely bringing judgment and wrath on all of us because we've all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. But God's character, his graciousness and his love is shown that he chooses to save some. And, uh, and there's a great hope for us now in this, in this time. Uh, scripture calls this the, the, the day of repentance. We, we can right now turn back to God and not receive that judgment graciously through Jesus Christ. And so uh, sometimes I mean, it's good to think these things through and work out who is God and what's he doing here. But also not, not, we must not do that at the, at the cost of uh, turning to Christ ourselves um, because we haven't sorted it out. God says, turn back to me. I will forgive you. I will save you through Jesus. And so turn back. Um, yeah, but these are good things to think through. And Romans 9 is a good chapter to wrestle with. Yeah, they're big questions. Um, yeah. God is sovereign. He's in complete control. He knows the beginning from the end. Um, and yet also we're responsible. Mm. Uh, and so make sure we're not rejecting him. Make sure we're turning back. Make sure that we are um, calling out for the salvation that God in his grace gave us at great cost to himself through his son's mm. death. Theologically, we, we call that compatibilism. Is that a word for you, if you like big theological words? Compatibilism, that it, it is compatible for God to be completely in control in terms of who gets saved and who doesn't. But also, it is also true that those who um, live as humans in this world are responsible to, to turn back to God. And both are true, and Scripture yeah. teaches both. <laughs> those are compatible uh, doctrines rather than incompatible doctrines. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on oh, this actual question is about Romans nine. Nice. So uh, yeah. question three. Um, the question is: Did you say, Mike, uh, that God sent the plagues to soften Pharaoh's heart? I think you did on Sunday night. Yep. Um, but in Romans nine, it is God's will that Pharaoh's heart is not softened. How does that work? Is it is it both? Yeah, uh, it is both. <laughs> Absolutely. That's one of the great things about the story of the Exodus. Um, and again, it comes a little bit back to this word. Comp- Compatibilism that, that Sam you just mentioned, um, that in 
Exodus, uh, both Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart and God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And you know, how does that work? Well, that's the Bible's logic. Um, but also, God wanted Pharaoh to let his people go, and that's why he sent the plagues. And yet God also knew that in sending the plagues that he wanted to soften Pharaoh's heart so that he'd let his people go, it actually did the opposite. It kept hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so it is both. Mm. <laughs> uh, God wanted to harden and soften same mm. time yeah and Romans 9 is the chapter to go and wrestle with um, through that yeah yeah that's exactly right yeah okay um, uh, next question here Mike is that one of your tips for reading Revelation is remember the original audience yeah um, and, and uh, you, you said uh, if your interpretation of Revelation is one that the original audience wouldn't have come to then it's probably not the right interpretation yep um, the question that follows on but tonight's chapters were filled with Old Testament imagery, and if this letter is written to churches across Asia, would those that Gentile portion of the original readers um, have had any chance of interpreting these chapters correctly, seeing that they probably weren't clued into these Old Testament images? Yeah, so there's a couple of assumptions in that question. Um, first of all, the churches across Asia probably uh, included both Jew and Gentile. Um, and so not just a Gentile audience. Now, what about the, the portion of Gentiles? Did, did they know their Old Testament? Well, I take it as they became Christian and as they mixed with um, Jewish Christians that they would have picked up Old Testament imagery pretty quickly. I mean, in that culture, I feel like uh, perhaps even more than our culture, there was a real value of God's word and uh, desire to know it and passed on in its oral tradition and read. And I think these guys probably knew their Old Testament better than us. Mm. And so I think they were clued into Old Testament imagery. Mm. And I take it that, that part of gospel preaching both then and now is to not just, we don't just, I mean, at one level, we just preach Jesus. But at another level, Jesus comes as, a, as the fulfillment of promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament through Abraham and then worked out throughout that whole story of salvation in, in, under the Old Covenant. And, and we must continue to preach Old and New Testaments Absolutely. of the Bible. Yep. Otherwise, the gospel itself doesn't make sense. And I, and I take it that's what the first apostles did. Um, certainly, uh, by the time of Revelation being written as the the um, diaspora went out of uh, Jerusalem after the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple there. They would have taken their Old Testament with them. Uh, but even the original um, gospel preachers would have preached both the fulfillment, uh, the, sorry, the Old Testament promise and then Jesus as the fulfillment. And, and we've got to keep doing that as well now. We don't just preach Jesus in a vacuum. He, he comes as the fulfillment of uh, age-old promises. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that's primarily talking about the Old Testament, mm. uh, the old scripture at that point. Uh, and so, yeah, we've got to keep preaching the whole counsel of God. That's right. And so it sort of comes back to us. For us, as we read Revelation, we must do it with our Old Testaments open. And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. We're looking into this week coming up, uh, passage 10 and 11, there's just illusions through that. I mean, through Ezekiel in particular, uh, that just kind of jump out at you, but you just don't see them if you're not reading your Old Testament That's at the same it. time. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Um, someone's got a question for you, Mike, about uh, the angels in chapter 9, um, verses 14 and 15. There are these four angels that get um, kind of released onto the earth and they go and kill a third of the, the, the population. 
Um, wh whose angels are they? Are they God's? Are they Satan's angels that God then releases and allows to go? Can you shed some light on that? Yeah. Um, well, to be honest, I don't think I can work out from the text exactly if it's Satan's angels or God's. Um, what they do sounds horrific, doesn't it? Um, that they are killing. Uh, and so you think, well, that can't be from God, surely. But actually, God does send his angels out right throughout Revelation and right through all, all Scripture um, to exact judgment and his wrath and his justice. And that does involve death. Uh, and so it could be that these angels are right from heaven itself. Um, or it could be that they're Satan's angels, because that kind of makes a bit more sense from where we stand theologically, that Satan is you know, the agent of death. And to be honest, I think at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter, because the big picture is, make sure you repent. Um, these are, whether they're Satan's angels or God's angels, they are under the control of God, because God is the one who um, sends them out. Um, and so they're kind of working on God's behalf um, for the purpose of leading us to repent. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's helpful to know, though. I think sometimes we do balk at the idea of God. Could God be party to yeah. seeing people die? But that, I mean, the angel of the Lord, that that's the role. You go back to Exodus where we've been already um, today. Um, certainly as uh, the, the, the firstborn is, is killed, it's the angel of the Lord that Absolutely. passes through that God himself takes responsibility for death. Um, mm. But then at the same time, that, that must be true because otherwise you've got this whole area of, uh, of the world that God's not in control of. Um, and what a horrible thought to think that God is out of control in anything, but in particular on death. And, um, and maybe that kind of points us to the fact that um, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus uh, really gives us confidence because death is not outside of uh, God's hands, not outside of his control. Um, we, we want God to, to, to be the one in, in control of death. Yeah, the sovereignty of God in Scripture, it's, it's actually a wonderfully pastorally comforting doctrine. Uh, mm. We kind of balk at it, um, and yet it's always a source of great comfort particularly if you're going through hard times. This is not outside of the hand of God. He's in control. Nice. All right. Uh, the, if someone's asked a question here about chapters 8 9 as a whole. Um, if the point of those chapters, as you said on Sunday, is to lead us to repentance, then why does verse 20 tell us that the rest of mankind still did not repent, um, despite the warning? It seems a little bit bleak. Uh, or does it mean that man's heart is so hardened that uh, repentance is unavailable with this judgment? It does seem bleak, isn't it? And you think how wicked and how stubborn and how crooked is the human heart that even with all this judgment, we still fail to turn back to God. Uh, and my mind goes to uh, Jeremiah 18. Uh, I'm just going to read uh, from halfway through verse 11. It says... Uh, God says, look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and, and your actions. Kind of sounds like Revelation 8 and 9, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But then verse 12 says, but they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. <laughs> 
that is the nature of the human heart. It is stubborn. It's evil. And even when God sends the loudest, most horrific warnings, people still will not repent. And so this is a, a bleak picture. And yet, and yet, by God's sovereignty, by the sending of his spirit, we know that God can take even the most stubborn, evil heart and turn that heart back to him. And so if it was left up to us, Revelation 8 and 9 would be a completely bleak chapter. No hope because we're so evil, so stubborn. But in light of the sovereignty of God, we know there is hope. Mm. Great. Move on to the last one for today, Mike, um, which was uh, just trying to get, uh, this person trying to get their head around um, the nature of this judgment that God is, uh, is sending. And, and you mentioned on Sunday that um, perhaps, you know, we, we see the stuff of Revelation 8 and 9 every night as we watch the news. Yes. Um, it's just the, the, the realities of the fallenness of this world and its brokenness and all, all of the stuff that's going on. Um, but then Revelation 8 and 9 seems to suggest that Christians are, um, are somehow sealed and um, protected from it. Um, and someone's just trying to understand, well, well, in what way are Christians protected? You, you see Christians, you know, get caught up in war, in famine, in earthquakes. Um, they're sinned against, they're killed. Um, we're not immune, it doesn't seem. So in what sense then... Are the are the Christians safe as as Revelation eight and nine Revelation eight and nine seems to suggest they are? Yeah, really good question, and I'm sorry I didn't have time to kind of cover this on on Sunday. Um, I take it that the safety, the security, the protection isn't a physical safety, and we know that from Revelation because Christians die, Christians are martyred, Christians suffer, and in fact, Revelation ten and eleven is going to. Um, put that front and center for us. And so the way that we're protected is actually ultimately spiritually. Uh, we are sealed by God because he will help us to persevere even through trial, even through even through martyrdom. Uh, God will keep us safe. And that actually gives us a little hint in terms of what exactly is these horrific judgments. It's not just the physical things, but it's also the spiritual harm that can come to us. Um, and so... <laughs> it's lunchtime. We must be finished soon, Sam. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so the, the, the protection, the safety is ultimately a spiritual one, uh, not necessarily a physical one. Yeah, okay. No, no, that's really helpful. Um, that's it for questions this week. Um, uh, next next week we're pushing along Revelation chapter 10, chapter 11. That's it. Quick uh, preview of, of what's coming up yeah well again and uh hopefully this won't come as any surprise to you here's another camera lens another camera angle on the same events the same time that we're living in now which is the time between jesus death and resurrection and the coming of the new creation and the focus of this angle is uh why is it so hard to be a christian uh, why is it so hard to share the gospel and uh should we keep doing it even though it's hard, or should we give up? Uh, and so Revelation 10, 11 is going to help us to understand the times we live in as the church trying to evangelize the world. Great. That's it for today on The Extras. Um, great to have you listening along with us. Um, please keep uh, sending in your questions. We love wrestling with them, thinking them through, answering them. Uh, but we'll leave it for there today, and uh, we'll see you on Sunday. See you guys. Bye-bye.